When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef and they're 100%. Mm, they're so good they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I was excited that I had the chance to talk to Nima Hojat, who is primarily fantasy sports analyst for Real GM, though he writes pieces all over, and recently he wrote a very interesting piece making the primarily economic argument for expansion. Expansion's an issue that I care a lot about. It's something that I've written about for Real GM before and something that I think about quite a bit. So it was fun to have a conversation with him. We started with summarizing his article, which you definitely should read. It's great to have read before this. It's on Real GM. The link will be on the Real GM link to this podcast. And we go through the arguments for that related to the really high franchise valuations and things of that sort. And then we get into some of the related issues that I personally find interesting, like where the potential 32nd team would be, because I think everybody agrees that if the league expands, the 31st team should go to Seattle. But issues like what should be done with Las Vegas, my argument that the season should be shorter and ways to supplement that revenue, and just kind of where the league is going, and we talk about the incentives and where everybody's going with that. And it was a lot of fun to have a conversation with him. Runs about 40 minutes. I think you'll enjoy it. It was a lot of fun to do. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Looking forward to to our discussion. Yeah, so... Expansion, you wrote a piece on it recently for Real GM, and it's an issue that we both feel passionately about. And what I found interesting about your piece is that I think you laid out a really effective argument for the incentives of doing so. And I was hoping you could walk through it, and then I'm sure we'll pick pieces to talk about in more detail. Uh, Sure thing. I normally associate with the Sonics return, you hear an emotional argument, and I present that as well normally when I discuss it. But I just wanted to dig deeper into the numbers and just uh, put emotion aside and just 
see, you know, the ultimate question, would expansion be worthwhile for the NBA owners? Because ultimately, no expansion is going to happen unless it benefits the owners. I think that's the reality of the situation. So, you know, I simplified the numbers a little bit here. I think we had to. But I think based on analysis set forth, it, it has all the key components where you can come to a yes or no conclusion. I think that has enough details uh, with that regard. So basically the big piece right now that's being negotiated uh, between the NBA and the various media companies is the media rights digital package. And there's been rumors that it's going to be double or more the current existing package. So rumblings of up to $2 billion per year, I don't think that's crazy. I mean, it's a crazy amount of money, but based on, you know, NFL, MLB, what's out there, $2 billion a year could very well be the number. And it's really based on how sports just over the last few years, the TV rights deals have exploded because of the whole DVR concept, whereas with sports, people want to watch live. I think it's one of the last pieces of TV out there where people really don't want to watch on tape. Like the moment you go online, you find out who won, and you want to have that element of surprise when you're watching. So, okay, so but going back to it, so really they can't expand until they know how much they're going to have to split the pie if they add additional teams. So we looked at and decided to go with a $2 billion per year number for the next media rights deal. That should include TV, radio, digital, all that. That was the big piece there. And then the other piece you had to look at was the uh, expansion fees. And I believe the last team, the Charlotte Bobcats, now Hornets, I think they went for $300 million when they came in about 10, 10-ish years ago. And overall now, with some of the numbers floating around, you saw the Clippers went for $2 billion, which I don't think anyone thinks that's their true market value, but it just shows how fast uh, team prices have uh, risen. Uh, and maybe the Milwaukee Bucks are a better example, uh, $560 million for a team with a small market and an old arena. So that's got to be the baseline. And just the desire for people to own teams. It's really uh, unique. You saw how hard uh, Donald Sterling fought to keep ownership of the Clippers. Larry Ellison, who's got billions and billions of dollars, has tried hard to become an NBA owner. There's only 30 of them to go around now, so it's something that people will will spend, you know, lots and lots of money for. So rumors have come out with up to a billion dollars for an expansion team, and that's, again, not far-fetched based on the rights package. It's going to be very expensive. And also, uh, yeah, just the overall, the you know, the values have just constantly gone up and up uh, of teams just throughout the year. So it's not completely out of the realm of possibility that we go up to a billion. And I actually think probably that's a likely price. If if the owners know they can get a billion per team, then that's exactly what they're going to charge. So uh, you look at those pieces and if you tell yourself, if you're an owner, let's let's say you're an existing owner, you can tell yourself, okay, well, uh, we have 2 billion per year in the new media rights package. We divide that by 30 teams. We get, I'm just throwing the numbers out here, $66.7 million per year per team. But if we add two teams, then we're going to have to cut them into the pie. So rather than splitting by 30 teams, we're going to split by 32. So based on uh, $1 billion expansion fee per team and let's say two teams, the upfront payment 
uh, to each of the 30 existing teams would be roughly $66.7 million. But then their uh, annual payout from the media rights deal would be uh, dropped to $62.5 million. So roughly a little bit over $4 million less per year. So the owners would have to decide to themselves, is it worthwhile to take an upfront payment of $66.7 million in order to cut in two additional teams and take in $4 million less per year from the media rights and all the other uh, revenue that's shared? It's, it's obviously more than just the media rights and there's other layers such as revenue sharing and so, but that would, I think for the purposes of the argument, if we go with media rights, that will display enough of the analysis. So yeah, and basically yeah. That's, that's the question. Yeah, and so what, what I think you laid out really nicely is that I, in a lot of ways, the best argument for close to immediate expansion is the fact that teams might be even overvalued right now. Because if, if you have that, you want to cash in on that bubble as long as you can. Because that's the argument is that if you're if you're making this if you're making this calculation if owners are doing that you want to do it when the value of one end is the highest because that's the way of maximizing your return and you lock in that price it's not like they can adjust it if franchise values go down no absolutely the, the, that's the other thing too the um, you know we're approaching bubble territory here with, with prices and I think the Clippers I, as we said no one no one considers them worth uh, two billion dollars. So we're we're getting to the point where you could see prices go down. Uh, you absolutely could see that go down. Maybe even if that's not likely, there is a point where the numbers have to make sense for the team valuations. And I think the Clippers, that just doesn't make sense if you run, you know, you, you just do the valuation based on revenues and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, there's a point where if the owners wait, they may not be able to get a billion dollar price tag or as high of a price tag as they would if they did now. And compounding that is also the time value of money where uh, X amount of dollars in your hand today is worth more than that same amount tomorrow. And God forbid, worth a lot more than a lower amount some date later in time. And beyond that, you also have this circumstance that I don't think people are talking about enough that if franchises are overvalued, a smart owner who isn't as invested in the parts of it that are leading to it being overvalued, the status and everything else – might be interested in selling. And so the appeal of a one-time payment with the cascading or declining rights fees after, you know, but it's still a bump, is that if you time it right, you get that money. Uh, and so we could see some smart owners that want to get out while while things are good, get that extra little, little 66 million or so, I think is the, is the number payment, and then just get out after that, and so you get the upside without the downside. Oh, absolutely. Any For any owner who has any intention on selling their team in the next 10, 15, even 20 years, they would be foolish not to support the expansion at, at these numbers. Uh, I think the only case where you have an argument the other way would be someone, you know, an ownership group or a family who wants to own the team in perpetuity they could come back and say, well, look, you know, we have no plans on selling anytime soon. So, you know, we're not going to benefit as much from the upfront payment if we have to kick back from the media rights and the other revenue. But even then, you you know, they that's not clear because that upfront payment, they could invest that and do a lot with that. So, yeah, I think certainly anyone who has any intention, any of the owners have any intention of selling anytime in the next 20 years, 
would greatly benefit from uh, supporting expansion and taking that upfront fee. The other thing that makes the NBA different from other sports, and it surprises me, like, actually hockey could do this too, but one of the things that stands out is that basketball does not need an even number of teams because nobody play, you don't. Ever, there's no day except for maybe the last day of the season where everybody plays on the same day. It's not like the NFL where that has to happen because it's a week-to-week or baseball where they play a series. So while a two-team expansion would be possible or, you know, contraction or whatever, you can you can do odd numbers and survive in the NBA, which also in, in a way gives them leverage because they don't have to say, hey, we have to get a second team. If they wanted to, let's say, add a team in Seattle, they could do that without any other corresponding move. Absolutely, and I know um, for most of the last 30 years, up until when they added the Hornets, the NBA had an odd number of teams. So they were at 29, I think, once they added the Canadian teams, rest in peace, Vancouver Grizzlies. And then before that, when they had the Heat and the uh, Wolves and first version of the Hornets and the Magic, uh, they were at odd numbers you know, each year, for, so for a long time. So, yeah, absolutely, they could go with just one team. I think the benefit of going two teams would go back to the um, upfront payment as well, just to cash in, you know, the additional amount. But overall, the same analysis would apply. And they certainly could go with one team. And quite frankly, it's better to go with one team expansion if you don't have a second city that would benefit the NBA long term. And so I think they've got to be very careful of if they were to do two teams, who they would add. I agree with that. And the other part of this, and you talked a little bit about the idea of revenue sharing, one of the parts that makes the NBA distinct is that they don't necessarily maximize the markets that they have right now. And a great example of that is Seattle, because you're not adding two teams that are going to be, if you lined up all the NBA franchises from top to bottom in terms of the potential value for revenue sharing. Seattle is going to be towards the top. They're not going to be on the bottom end. This isn't going to be a team that is going to be taking money from the rest of the league. This is going to be a team that adds to that pool. And that increases the appeal to the existing owners because you're adding a team which also ships around everybody else in the line. So you can, you're getting a greater advantage than if you added a team in a city that was at least in the bottom third, like other leagues sometimes do this. Seattle would be uh, throwing into the pot as a revenue payer. And it's not just because they're a big city. We, we've actually seen historically Seattle support basketball for 41 years. And so I think it's, you know, it, it, they really would have comfort in that. And, you know, if Seattle came in, there would be a brand new arena. Everything is set in place. They really just need a team. They, they have everything squared up with the Seattle government. On board, and that, by the way, for those who don't know Seattle politics, it is moving mountains, especially in today's age, to get the government on board with uh, any type of public funding for an arena. But they actually, through Chris Hansen and his team's efforts, they've got everything lined up. Where literally, well, I should take a step back. There, there's a environmental review that still needs to be completed, but that's in process and that should be before the end of the year. But once they have that final piece then they just need a team. And once Chris Hansen has a team, they can build the arena. So it's absolutely going to be uh, one of the stronger revenue teams in the league. Yeah, and that's that's a big part of this. And I think another thing to look at this, if we are, let's just say we are going to add two teams, uh, and it's going to be a billion-dollar price tag, you know, if a team in Seattle, you could justify, you know, that high of a price tag. But some of the other cities, for example, would you – if you were an owner in – uh, Louisville, 
because Louisville's name has come up, would you be willing to pay a billion dollars to have a team based in Louisville? Yeah, I think that's definitely the big question. Louisville, Kansas City, I think there are a couple of cities around there that it seems like it will be more of more in the idea of a status thing than in the idea of as an investment, which is fine. I actually think prefer personally prefer owners that don't try to run a profit. I think that leads to a better league. But I don't think you pay a billion dollars for a team in a place like that, no detriment to the city of Louisville or Kansas City, with the idea of saying, hey, this is a huge moneymaker. It's a, it's a little bit of a different idea, and if somebody's willing to do it, that's wonderful. But I think you're right that it, it is a very different calculation than a place like Seattle, which is just this huge market that's waiting to be tapped again. Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, it would be... Uh, they say most of these owners are businessmen. There are some that do it for civic pride and and are not as concerned with loss. I am going to assume uh, Steve Ballmer is not going to be as concerned with the bottom line year to year. But yeah, I mean, but a lot of these owners they do want to see something healthy on the bottom line, and that's why I think you know if Louisville could get someone that has local ties there, then maybe the billion dollar price tag and of course deep deep pockets then maybe that you know they're not as concerned but i think the enormous price tag for a team will definitely factor in as to which cities would be viable for assuming they do you know 32 teams i'm guessing if if and when they expand it's going to be by two teams it, you know it could be one but my guess is that it'll be by two yeah i would look more if it were if it were my decision if i were somehow lucky enough to have a billion dollars to throw at a team i would look more at expanding into a good market that could use another team and so that could be i live in the bay area adding a team in san jose that could be the rumored place that the sacramento kings one of the places they were considering other than seattle was orange county anaheim i think they could support a team just because there are so many people down there and the challenge with that is you're getting into more direct competition with existing owners. And we've already seen the Warriors lay the groundwork claiming that they are the Bay Area's team, I think, to try to prevent somebody like Larry Ellison from buying a team and putting them in San Jose. But there are other ones. I've talked with people before that a, a market that could have a second team, maybe not emotionally, but just in terms of the size of the market, is Chicago. Chicago could easily support two teams. They do it in baseball, and I, I feel like they could do it in basketball. The Bulls have a huge base, but there are so many other people in Chicago. Yeah, Chicago absolutely can support a second team. I think out of the sports, baseball is the toughest to support two teams, just due to the sheer number of games and the attendance required. And if you can support two baseball teams, you can certainly support two basketball teams. And Chicago is definitely a basketball crazy town. So there'd be no doubt Chicago could support a second team. I do think San Jose could. I do think uh, Orange County definitely could. The two cities I would pull for for the 32nd team would be Vancouver. I, I think they never got a fair shake. Um, if you look at their record for their six years in Vancouver, they never won more than, I believe, I'm going off memory, 19 games in a season. Something like that, where they were atrocious each year they never had a chance with that team yet their attendance numbers were no worse than what memphis has today they were very supportive of that team uh granted there were also issues with the canadian dollar at that point that have since gotten smoothed out for now but i would love to see a, a reincarnation of a vancouver team but the other the other the, the other cash cow that i think the leagues are sitting on is uh, las vegas there's a new arena going up on the strip and there's a lot of, you know, 
I just think basketball fits Las Vegas. If you're going to have a sports team there, I don't think baseball makes sense. Football, of course, could do fine anywhere. But I, I think basketball kind of just fits Vegas, you know, the excitement of the sport, the the front court seats. I, I think Vegas is sitting there waiting for one of the leagues to get in there. And it could be an absolute cash cow for one of the leagues. I know that David Stern was terrified of the gambling aspect. It was pretty well, kind of well-established, not my own reporting, obviously, that that would be a problem. My thought in Vegas has always been that the NBA should do more there, but maybe do something a little bit different, Do maybe have a team have five or eight games there. I think that would be a really interesting idea, so make it more of a spectacle because the challenge of Vegas is that you still want it to be events. And we see things, you know, boxing, MMA, lots of things do really well there. My worry with Vegas is that, assuming we're keeping an 82-game season, having 41 home games there sounds like a lot. But if you could make it, you know, I think some enterprising team putting, even if they put generally their less attractive games there, you know, if they put, they did, they don't put the Cavs, they don't put the Knicks, they don't put whatever L.A. team is good at a given time. You don't put those games in their home stadium, but you put other ones there. Some college football teams do this, actually. I think that's the solution for Vegas if a team is smart enough to do it. And then also, let's say it's one of the L.A. teams or Sacramento, then you're, not, you're, you're also taking away a potential location for a rival team, assuming it's somewhere close to where you are. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's definitely, I think, a great idea. And I do think from that, you could also use that to kind of test Vegas to see, you know, if you think down the road it could be a good market. I, I think there's two different ways to look at it. There is a large group of people who uh, absolutely want nothing to do with a full-time team in Vegas, and that's understandable. And then you have the other side where they, you know, they think it's, it's a, it'd be a great market. But I think at least getting, you know, maybe and maybe it's the Clippers. I don't know. I mean, Sacramento would make a lot of sense as well. But Clippers, just from proximity, if they were to have five games at the new MGM Arena you know, whatever that's built, and just kind of see, you know, what what the crowd's like. Do the games all sell out? Do you have, you know, quite frankly, issues with players out? You know, I mean, I know that's a big concern for the NBA as well. It's just they're, you know, will the players get in trouble there? But I think it'd be a good way to test it out, and they can maybe try to figure out, is it worth the hassle of trying to put a team there? Do we think it'd be successful? Do we think it'd actually bring in a lot of revenue or not? Yeah, and I also think that the idea of having it be a team, whether whether it be the Clippers or the Kings, because they're building a new arena, that it doesn't look like they're thinking about moving there. I, I'm always uncomfortable when it looks like a team is doing test things at an arena, and it like when the when the Buffalo Bills played some games in Toronto, and it seems like they're testing it out for them to move. I think it would be a much more interesting idea to see a team that is stable where they are, do it as a way to create interest, supplement their things, maybe make maybe even make their normal home games a little bit more special and drive up the demand that way, as opposed to a team's fan base freaking out saying, oh, God, we're going to lose, you know, we're going to lose these. And the other idea with that, which would probably be all right with season ticket holders, would be using the idea of having it be the less, if they're using the current NBA schedule structure, having it be teams in your conference, but the extra game that you get. Because it would be unfortunate, let's say you pick up you, you put a game of the other conference, you only play them once at home. So I wouldn't really want to put those games, but if you're only doing five, it's pretty easy to do that. You can do a division game, you can do a, 
a game of a team in your conference that isn't very good. And that would be a nice test case to see how Vegas works in a small sample. I also think the idea of doing a tournament there would definitely be interesting. All-Star Weekend has some other issues with it, but you could do other things there as well. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, I think that's a great idea. And I think in this case, now that, for example, Sacramento and Stable, we know they'll be in Sacramento. Yeah, I think I completely agree doing it now with them versus having done it three years ago would be a huge, hugely different scenario. Yeah, and Clippers, of course, also, and they're entrenched in LA. And I, I've heard from folks in Seattle talking about the Clippers possibly going to Seattle. There's just no chance. I, I think that should be put to bed once and for all. It just doesn't make any any sense financially for Steve Ballmer to pick the Clippers from LA and move them up to Seattle, you know? Uh, yeah. Especially considering that the, the high valuation of the team was partially attributed to where they play. Yeah. You know, they, that they're, they're a team in LA. I, and that leads me into a question I was going to ask you as somebody who's more versed in the area. So we're talking, you talked about the idea of a Vancouver team. The Pacific Northwest already has two owners that own teams in other places, Paul Allen owns the Portland Trailblazers, and now Steve Ballmer owns the Clippers. And presumably, Hanson is ahead of them in line and would put a team in Seattle. Do you know of a fourth person that has the money to do that, that would put a team in Vancouver? The name's escaping me, but the Vancouver Canucks owner, Achilles, something on those lines, he has toyed with, from what I've read, I should say, he's toyed with the idea of getting into the NBA if he could. Uh, So it'd be the Canucks owner is the name I've heard. Apparently he has the pockets, deep enough pockets to do so. And the other thing about Vancouver is the the building is already up and running just fine. The same one the Grizzlies played at when they were there. So it'd be a plug and chug. Uh, it's definitely interesting. Yeah. Cause then you, you don't have to worry about it. I think Kansas city also already has their arena built. Cause I think they did something crazy. Like they built an arena before they had a team. Yeah. Uh, and- so that, so yeah, that's another advantage. Cause you don't have to worry about, the NBA has dealt with that. It's part of how the Sonics left in the first place is the idea of having to settle all of that. And if you already have that piece in place, that's a huge advantage for any team, any any person that's willing to do that. Of course, having a billion to front is another advantage. Yeah, I, I know uh, Steve Ballmer being part of Chris Hansen's group and now leaving you know, to own the Clippers, that definitely didn't help the Seattle cause. And part of the concern as well was you know, we'd heard rumblings, and it just it's common sense. The NBA wanted Steve Ballmer as an owner. I mean, how could you not want someone with $20 billion to be part of the club? That was part of the additional appeal of getting Seattle back in, you know, on top of the whole, the whole great market argument and all that is Steve Ballmer, you know. Well, now that Steve Ballmer's gone, Chris Hansen, uh, you know, while by all accounts he has a good relationship, working relationship with the NBA, there's not a rush to get – Chris Hansen is the NBA. At least, you know, one would assume, cause in the same way as one would assume for Steve Ballmer. It also was interesting that the league didn't seem, from what I could tell, though obviously it wasn't on the inside, the league didn't seem as enthusiastic about the possibility of Larry Ellison owning the Warriors, though obviously that wasn't a sale that really ran through the NBA. I believe it was Russ Granick was involved in it, so you could guess that he was still relatively well-connected with what the NBA as a whole wanted. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, I will say, though, for uh, going back to the Seattle Chris Hansen group, I do think he, will, he won't have a problem replacing he, – he won't be able to find a Steve Ballmer, but he, he, he'll be able to find 
other rich investors who want to get in on the action, it'll probably be three or four guys who, you know, who jump in and they'll put together, you know, a solid ownership group. They have the Nordstrom brothers who are also, who remain part of the group. To me, the, the argument about expansion, I think that one of, one of the things that major piece was really strong in the sense is that my opposition to expansion is not the financial part of it. It's and it's also the most interesting part of it is that in in all likelihood the players will support it too. And it leads to what I, I believe it's more of an economics term than anything else could be political science is the tragedy of the commons. Basically the idea is every group that matters in terms of voting has an incentive for this to happen, but it leads to, at least in some sense, a dilution of the quality of play in the league. And the problem is there's a huge incentive now if the franchise values are as high as it's at. And for players, there, there are two more teams. There are that many, that's not only that much more salary space, but if you think about the idea of teams having a pressure to have a max guy and things like that, that opens up max slots. It opens up things like that. And for existing players who are the ones that would, you know, be more in, involved in, though they obviously don't have it, they're not veto players in it, but it would be, it would make them happy. And, that's a uh, com- compelling factor in this as well. Yeah, I think the players would have the least um, argument against it. If I'm a player and there's going to be two more teams, meaning let's just say 15 jobs per team from the rosters, if you count the inactive guys, you know, that, that just all – and, yeah, as you said, there's more not just minimum salary players, but you, you're going to have some max slots. You're going to have mid-levels. You're going to have – yeah, I mean, basically, we're talking about an extra 120 to 150 million in additional spending that goes towards the players. It would be a win-win for the players, uh, no doubt about it. And I do think you hit on an interesting point, though the uh, dilution of talent through expansion. I, you know, we hear that all the time. My personal stance on it is, I don't think it's a reason not to expand by two additional teams. I think, you know, there, there is. Obviously, truth, the more teams you have, you're going to be spreading some talent thinner. But if you look at where players come from today compared to 20, 30, 40 years ago, you have players coming from Africa. You have players coming from Europe. You have players coming from Asia. There's so many more outlets from where players come from now than back in the day. So there's a lot larger talent pool uh, to select from. And, yeah, I think the argument is there's only X amount of superstars, so you're going to have uh, – you're going to be spread thinner on that front. That's true. But you also do have players in Europe who are better than some of maybe the back-end players in the NBA. There are NBA-quality players out there who are not currently playing in the NBA. Yeah, I definitely think there's a there's a fair argument there. The other thing, and while they are separate concepts, that if the league expanded that I would like to see is to have that coincide with a reduction in the number of games in the season. I think that one of the huge arguments to me of a 32-team league is that you could have everybody play everybody twice, and you would still have a 62-game season. You know, that's that's a lot of games. That's I think that's enough. And you're getting the, depending on how they structure the television rights deal, you're, you can do that without losing any national games. And if you're talking about the idea of appealing to players who aren't in the NBA, while the money would probably go down a little bit, I think that the benefit to players is that it would be a less rigorous schedule. And I think that's part of the reason why some guys don't come over. 
is that the U.S. schedule is pretty ridiculous. And if they could do that, I think it would reduce injuries, which also helps quality of play. And so it counteracts, in a way, some of the criticisms that people like me have levied on expansion. Well, I think you're speaking rationally, and I agree with everything you're saying. My concern is the owners are not going to be okay with um, punting away any revenue, uh, any additional revenue. That's my concern. I, I think you hit the nail on the head, to be honest. I think 82-game regular season is way too long. If you look at the college regular season, it's, what, 20, 25 games, 30 maximum, and you know, you now, when you go from college to the NBA, you jump from 30 to 80, 82, uh, more than double. If you look at college football, you have 12 or 13 game seasons now, regular seasons, and now in the NFL you have 16. So it's, it's a reasonable jump up. There's absolutely no need for 82 games. But I do think if you go to the owners and you're going to tell them we're going to have you know, less games, it's just going to be less gate receipts. I just don't see them foregoing that revenue for the good of the game, unfortunately. I mean, I, I think yeah, absolutely agree with everything you're mentioning. I just, there aren't enough yeah. owners who think that way. You're probably right. The, the fascinating component of it, just in terms of the business of the NBA, is that from what I understand, it is far more profitable in the playoffs than in the regular season. And since at, at, mo at the moment, more than 50% of NBA teams make the playoffs and shifting the scale from have, from being so heavily regular season to postseason would actually be a massive benefit if you had the faith that your team was going to make the playoffs more often than not, which I think would be the way that it happens would be if you have this batch of owners, because we like to think of it, you know, especially this goes into the American stereotypes of optimism. You like to think of your team as a soon-to-be-good team if you're not there already. And so if you go, hey, you know, we're gaining a share in the playoffs when owners make a ton of money because not only do they increase their ticket prices, but they pay the players a dif a differently. P players are paid differently for the playoffs than for the regular season. So that would be the argument. The sad thing is that I have never heard anybody in a position of power make that argument. Yeah, I, I think there you have a minority of people who think it, but I don't. I just don't. I think they're probably afraid of backlash. Just I, I yeah. I mean, I completely agree with with your thoughts. And I'm wondering if yeah, if there's a way. I, mean, I know there's 16 teams out of 30 make the playoffs. You don't want to expand that. But yeah, if there's other ways to increase playoff revenue. You know, I, I guess the best of nine might be too much. I'm just trying to think creatively of ways where. You can go rest, less regular season games, but somehow create even more revenue from the playoffs. One way is a postseason tournament of the teams that don't make the playoffs. The idea, possibly, I've pitched it as a way of determining the number one pick, would be if you had an eight team or let's say, you know, let's say you go to 32, so it's 16 and 16, then you could have a 16 team tournament for the number one pick. And you would th have to throw enough money at the players to make them actually play. But you could do that. And think about how much money the NCAA tournament gets. And you could even do that in the span between and before the real playoffs start. That would be one way of doing it because that would just be a boatload of revenue that you'd basically be getting with very little additional cost. And you could do that in Vegas. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great idea. We're, we're kind of tying some, some ends together here. I think that uh, I think that's a great idea. And I know that kind of – I know the whole – uh, lottery, that's a whole different subject. But yeah, I think a tournament, if you do go, we do go 32 teams, and yeah, you have 16 in the playoffs and 16 in the consolation bracket, 
and yeah, you play for, you know, you play for, you know, first pick, or maybe you play for uh, ping pong balls, you know, to increase your chances for a top pick. I don't know. I mean, that's, but that's definitely something they can do to increase revenue in lieu of, you know, if they were to swap out some, some of the regular season games, which I think everyone agrees there's just too many as is. Well, yeah, and the other benefit of, let's say it's a 16-team single elimination tournament, nobody's playing more than four games, and very few teams are playing more than two. So you're not doing this huge risk of injury. Obviously, you can do insurance and things like that. But, yeah, I would put, if I were doing that, first of all, the TV rights on it would be incredible because it's also in a stretch of time when, because it would be in, presumably it would be in April, so it's after March Madness is over. It's before most people start caring about baseball. So there's there's a little bit of a lull there that I think they could take advantage of. Though obviously, and I wouldn't really expand the length or change the length of the NBA regular season if we were to decrease the games. I would just, you know, take longer between games. Yeah. And so you would get it, you could get it in the sweet spot when football's over and you're not even, they're not even thinking about the draft. And basketball, really, the NBA would take center stage. And then that would be a lead-in for the playoffs. And one of the things that's surprising to me just as a, as somebody who's, you know, a hardcore basketball fan, because I write about it, is that generally speaking, in terms of excitement, the first round of the playoffs is often the best round of the NBA playoffs. And so to do something that led into that could be really good because people would be excited from the first round from things like Damian Lillard's shot or a really great Warriors Clippers series, lots of other things that happen. So you go into that, I think it would create more momentum than what the NBA has right now. Yeah, I think I think it'd be very exciting. I think it's a great idea. It'd be nice to you know, to give it a shot. Why don't they try something along these lines? If we can get the higher ups to listen to us, I think that would be that would be great. Yeah, but I think it would bring a whole lot of excitement for some of the yeah the non playoff teams. It'd be something to look forward to. And yeah, and I think with the schedule, I agree. You don't necessarily contract the length of the schedule. It would still maybe go from end of October as a starting point through. April for the regular season, when you cut out the back-to-backs, and maybe you kind of center the games more on, you know, the primetime viewings, like the Thursday through Sunday, and you you have, I mean, you'll have, like, weekday games, you know, early weekday games, too, but maybe less of those, and kind of just center it more, you know, maybe more like college basketball does. I know, like, for example, the Pac-12, uh, they tend to play games Thursday nights and Saturdays. So they kind of maximize the nights the games are played for nights where the ticket sales will be higher and you'll have more eyeballs watching the game. So they could kind of play around with it that way as well. Yeah, and the other point, you made this in the piece that I feel is an important thing to reemphasize, let's say, is the idea that unlike a team, let's say the Clippers selling to selling, and so the Sterling family trust, Shelly Sterling and her husband, who I will not name, they made that money. That wasn't money that was made by the league. Expansion teams, that money goes to the existing owners. And so that totally changes the incentives as well because they benefit more directly than just an increased value in the potential sale of their own team. Yeah, it absolutely. It goes right straight in their pocket. So, And I, I don't know for certain, but I do think with sometimes when they've done expansion, uh, the new teams haven't necessarily gotten a full cut of the revenue the first few years. They kind of work them into it. So I think that there might be even more benefit to the owners in that in that sense, too. So maybe first couple years, the Sonics and the 32nd team, those owners would get 50% payout of, of the revenue. I, I don't know if that's something that's done regularly, but I believe that's 
not uncommon when new teams come into the league. Yeah, I think that happens as well. I'm not. I'm honestly not completely sure. And if anybody who's listening wants to shoot me an email or tweet with what it is, it'd be much appreciated. But yeah, I, I think that that's also a factor, and it just it even sweetens the deal because they're adding plenty of revenue because they're still playing. It's not like they're playing less games. They're still playing the games, and a team like Seattle would get plenty, of, would generate plenty of revenue. But they're not if they don't get a full share for a couple of years, and I believe they don't pay the full salary cap for a few years. So you're basically adding a team that you're probably going to get some extra wins off of, but still get still be on the paying side of the revenue sharing would be a huge another huge benefit. Not that I think the owners need more reason. The only reason that the owners would be against it would be if it screws up their territorial issues, and I think that's why Seattle makes sense, and that's why we're I think we're hearing more talk about the Midwest than some of the more logical locations that have greater opposition, let's say. Yeah, I, I think San Jose's, the Chicago's, the uh, Anaheim or Orange County, uh, San Diego, uh, those would face a uh, more pushback, of course. You know, so I think it would probably now. I, I do think though, they, you know, with the NBA, if you look at you know where the teams are located, they're basically top. 10, 12 markets, San Seattle, and then you have, you know, a little bit of a gap, and then a lot of teams in what they call the one horse town. You have the Portlands, the San Antonios, the uh, Utahs, Memphis, cities along those lines. You have a large number of those where they're the only, Sacramento, the only game in town model. You have a lot of those types of cities as well. And Oklahoma City, and some have been very successful. A lot of those actually have been very successful, but I do think there's a little bit of a danger there as well because those teams often need more help with revenue sharing, and it's just it's riskier. If you go to one of the smaller markets, you just have to be careful that you know the you have a good corporate presence there to buy the suites and a large enough TV market, and and just that it'll pencil out revenue-wise. The last thing they need is to add. Uh, teams that are going to require $20 million a year in payouts from the revenue sharing. Well, yeah, and, and in some ways, in terms of the strength, it's a, the strength of the league in terms of ownership is that, yeah, I mean, they, there are so many teams that are in shaky markets. The, the example I use is the Pacers, though obviously they have great fans, and Indiana has an important place in basketball history. I think they've been they've been recipients of revenue-sharing money, even as their team has been one of the five, ten best in the league. So adding teams that are above them in the pecking order should be should make teams like that happy. Yeah. No, it really it's a win. If if you look at all it's a win win for everyone. I really do think so. And I, I think people just need to get it over the dilution of talent thought. I think that's the biggest reason I hear for why expansion should not happen. But I think in this case, you have the right market or markets, you know, if they can figure out the second market to go into uh, it just it makes sense, and it's been it's been a while. I mean, so over the last twenty, almost twenty five years, there hasn't been that much expansion. We've added three teams during that time: the two Canadian teams, now Memphis instead of Vancouver, and then uh, reincarnated Charlotte. So it's not a bad time, I think, to add a couple more teams uh, for the various reasons, uh, and especially when you have a jewel of a market in Seattle. That would be one of the additions. Yeah, it definitely would be. Are there are there any other thoughts that you want to share with listeners? Um, I, I just say for those who are not as familiar with the Seattle market, just to let everyone know, I, I was born and raised there. I was a huge Sean Kemp, Gary Payton, uh, 90s Sonics fan. And the passion there runs really deep. Uh, it was not 
due to fan support that that team left. It was an arena issue, a complicated one. It was an arena that was redone in the early 90s that within 10 years was termed outdated. So it, it was an unfortunate event that led to the dismissal. And the guys at Sonicscape produced a video that basically kind of does a great job of showing the different characters involved. We had David Stern, you had uh, Clay Bennett, you had the mayor of Seattle, local politicians. It was, it was pretty fascinating for those who haven't watched it. But yeah, people should know that Seattle deserves to have its team back. The, the Sonics were in the league for 41 years with great fan support. And those fans, they, de- they deserve a team. So when you, when you think no on expansion, you know, just put yourself in the shoes of uh, someone that's from the Seattle area. Uh, and, you know, and you have Gary Payton. Where does Gary Payton's jersey go up for retirement? Where does Sean Kemp's jersey go? You know, the, the, the Seattle fans, the Seattle former players, they need a, they need a basketball home. And, we, you know, we should hopefully support a return team there. It'll be good for everyone involved. Yeah, that certainly would be great for the league. And thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for writing the article, and hope to talk to you again. All right, thanks so much, Danny. Talk to you soon. Thanks again to Nima Hojat for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Real GM, and you can follow him on Twitter at Nima Hojat. That's N-E-E-M-A-H-O-D-J-A-T. It was good to have that. I think that the expansion conversation is one that needs to be had more openly. And also, something that I like that our conversation went to is more creative solutions and basically throwing everything against the page. I wouldn't be shocked if this does not happen behind closed doors, but it would be nice if it was a little bit more in the open to just to make sure that they're thinking about all these things because there are a lot of options. It doesn't have to be linear. It doesn't have to be one thing or the other, and I'm happy that it seems like from Zach Lowe's excellent reporting on the wheel and all of that stuff with the draft lottery that they've considered multiple proposals and gone through things and I personally like what they're rumored to be leaning towards far better than the wheels. So that's good. So it would be nice to see that. My personal opinion, we didn't get into this too much, is I would rather see a team in a, in a poorer market move to Seattle than expand. Though, if you are going to expand, now is the absolute best time. This is the first time that I would be substantially less opposed to expansion than previously. I would do two more teams if you can secure a good second location. I would not go with 32 just to have 32, but if you can get a team at the right valuation, at the right franchise price, and do it, I think it's it's a really good time to do it. And it would be wonderful if that could coincide with a reduction in the season. Also, I would tie it in with an increase in salaries to the D-League to try to keep more guys in the United States proper so that then they can move within the system. They don't feel the pressure to go to Spain or Greece or China or wherever, that they stay here and fight for an opportunity to play in the NBA. I think that would help the talent pool even more than it would be diluted by expansion. So it was a great conversation. Really happy to have it. As I mentioned last podcast, I am in the process of working on division-by-division combination off-season interview and season previews. The guest response has been fabulous so far. Right now, it's more an issue of pairing them and getting the divisions and then making getting the timing right. I have been telling them it's going to be over the next couple of months, so hopefully we'll see some in the next few weeks. It might take a little while. It just depends on when these people can be ready at the same time because I want the best podcast so I'm I'm willing to wait to get the right people at the right place 
So if that is what needs to happen, that will be what happens. But the people that have already committed to it, I'm beyond excited. Some new guests as well, which is something that I always want to do with the podcast. And as I always say, this is a collaborative thing. If you want to make this better, you can shoot me an email, daniel.larue at realgm.com. I've actually gotten a few in the last couple weeks. I try to respond to everything. And if it's a shorter thing, the best way to get in touch with me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Larue. That's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I promise I read everything. I do my absolute best to respond. And it's a great way to learn more. And people have given me comments that have made this better. And I, I would like to see more people do that because that's the, the idea. The, this is still, even though we're getting closer to a year, it's still relatively early on in the process of what I want to do with this show. So any insight, anything that would make it better for you, share it. There are probably other people who think the same thing and haven't taken the time. So I definitely appreciate it. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves.